0: And um, then Keith, Keith looks like he's about to get going. That was my friend, Dr. Kathy Shepkin in Lebanon. So I'm Dr. Keith Loud. and I am the... Thanks, Keith. Of P- Thanks, Kathy. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. <laughs> Perfect. So I'm Keith Loud. I'm the chair of pediatrics and physician-in-chief of the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to New Hampshire. For those who are, are you from outside of New Hampshire, and welcome to Bedford for those of you who are from New Hampshire to three meetings in one. Uh, At least for this first hour, we will be co-hosting the New England Regional Chapter of the Society for Adolescent Health Medicine fall meeting, which is all day, which is also, I, I unfortunately did forget, Maggie, that this is also the, the annual fall Chad School Health Nurses Conference, which we have m- many of our colleagues from school health and school nursing in the room. But New England Regional Chapter of SAM, which we call SAM is a multidisciplinary organization you'll hear more about over the course of the day, and we welcome absolutely welcome many more nurses and other uh, allied health colleagues into our organization and Josh will do that. And we are also right for this first hour of the Pediatric Grand Rounds at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth videocast to Lebanon. So those of you in this room, you see a code on the slide. In order to get your continuing education credit for this first hour, you will need to text to that phone number, that specific code and that will allow you to get your continuing education credit for this first hour. The rest of the day we'll take care of in separate ways. For my friends in Lebanon and colleagues you know how to do this, obviously. For my friends and colleagues in Lebanon, if you have questions at the end of the hour, Kathy will be emailing them to me, Dr. Shubkin, and I will repeat them in the room, and it's through the magic of uh, video conferencing that we are in two places for three meetings on this wet November morning. But we are really thrilled to um, bring together organizations and people who are interested in adolescent health. And I'm very thrilled to have um, a friend, uh, Abigail English, here to present our keynote speech uh, and Grand Rounds. Abigail is a lawyer, researcher, and advocate for the rights of vulnerable young people. Since 1999, she has directed the Center for Adolescent Health and the Law in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, a nonprofit legal and policy organization working nationally to promote the health of adolescents and young adults and their access to comprehensive health (laughs) care. From 1976 to 1998, she was an attorney at the National Center for Youth Law in San Francisco, California. Her research and advocacy have focused on health insurance and public financing of care for adolescents and young adults, consent and confidentiality protections, and sexual and reproductive health care. She received her undergraduate degree from Harvard University and law degree from UC Berkeley's Boat Hall School of Law. She taught at the UC Berkeley Goldman School of Public Policy, the Bolt Hall School of Law, and the Geeling School of Global Public Health at UNC Chapel Hill. She's a lawyer, but she is a full-fledged adolescent health friend, and expert. So she was the Gallagher Lecturer for the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine. In 1987, one of the higher honors our society um, um, awards, nationally, received the Child Advocacy Award from the American Bar Association, Lawyers Association Division, and the Outstanding Achievement Award in Adolescent Medicine from, from SAM, we call it SAM in 2000. She was the president of our medical organization, our multidisciplinary health organization. Uh, from 2007-2008, to and in 2010 was the Frida L. Miller Fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University studying sexual exploitation and sex trafficking of adolescents and young adults, which continues as a current focus of her research and advocacy. Um, Abigail is currently, among numerous other things, co-authoring a educational resource, resource for our region, for New England, um, to jump off from the topic that she's giving today on helping those of us who work directly with adolescents to consider the, con- the, the issues of consent, con- confidentiality, and mandated reporting. That is a document that is um, commissioned by the New Hampshire Pediatric Society and the New Hampshire Association of Family Physicians and will be available over the winter or spring. And um, therefore, Dr. <laughs> I'm so used to Grand Rounds introducing Dr. Abigail will not be answering any legal questions this morning. She will defer some of those specific case scenarios, but is happy to take questions on cases. So while I get her slides up, I am thrilled to welcome Abigail English to the podium.
1: very much, Keith, both for the introduction and particularly for the invitation to um, join all of you here this morning. Uh, I am absolutely delighted to see such a wonderful turnout and such a diverse group of professionals who all care about the health of adolescents and young adults. And I'm um, somewhat daunted by the topic that I was asked to speak about because It is a challenging one, but I look forward to the time at the end of my talk when we have some Q&A and I can learn from you also what some of your concerns are. Let me just, uh, no, ah. Okay. So what I'm going to do in the time that we have this morning it, with, the, with respect to the subject of uh, mandated reporting of adolescent sexual activity is to try to it- articulate very clearly what the challenge is that we're facing. And to give a little bit of background about adolescent sexual activity and confidential health care and then really to focus on untangling the laws Um, and to close with some comments about both the rationale for reporting sexual activity of adolescents and also some of the risks associated with doing that and to um, wrap up with a few comments about how do we figure out what should be done because I would imagine that each of you at some time or another in your professional work with adolescents has confronted the question of is there a situation in front of me that requires a report to child protective services or to law enforcement and when those situations involve sexual activity, they can be very challenging ones. So we'll try to shed as much light as possible on that. Um, Keith mentioned that I'm not gonna answer legal questions. I will answer legal questions, but what I will not do is, is provide you with any legal advice. For some reason, I'm just having trouble with the... Yeah, that would be, would be good. If I, one of these clickers worked. Let's see, that work, Press no? Ah, okay. That open. Yeah, and do this arrow. Okay, sorry about that. Technical difficulty. Um. I'm not going to give you any legal advice today, but I am going to try to give you as much information as I can that will help you understand the laws in your particular states. And I also am going to share some personal opinions, so be prepared for that. Um, I want to help you think about these very challenging issues in ways that help you provide health care that protects your young adolescent. Um, patients. So what is the challenge that we face? The challenge is how can we comply with the mandatory reporting laws that are in existence in every state and at the same time provide necessary health care to adolescents? that That's the, the challenge in a nutshell. Do I need to be concerned uh, about, about the... <laughs> <laughs> so, why is it this, this, that this challenge exists? I don't need to tell all of you that adolescents are sexually active, adolescents do need confidential health care, and <coughs> when they get health care and provide a candid health history that often reveals the kind of sexual activity that they're involved in and when this occurs sometimes laws and ethical principles come into play that I may either be in conflict with one another or may appear to be in conflict with one another and those conflicting laws and ethical principles generally relate to confidentiality protections on the one hand and reporting requirements on the other hand. You as healthcare professionals are, I would wager to say everyone in this room, are mandated reporters. But the laws that deal with the situations you confront can be very confusing, and often even ambiguous. So in order to meet this very difficult challenge, it's important, first of all, to understand very clearly what it is that the laws say, and then also understand what those laws mean. Because just knowing what the words say doesn't always tell you what they mean, and certainly doesn't tell you how those laws are applied and how conflicting laws are reconciled with one another. But having gained that understanding, it's then essential to act and to act in ways that not just comply with the laws, which is important and essential, but in ways that are consistent with ethical principles and most important to weigh in ways that protect the health of adolescents. So let's think a little bit about adolescent sexual activity. I want to be very clear at the outset that non-consensual sexual activity among adolescents, between adolescents and adults, is real and it's serious. We've seen a lot of information in the press, in the media, in the newspapers, in, on television, about sexual assault, sexual assault on college campuses, um, human trafficking, sex trafficking, and other kinds of non-consensual sexual interactions among young people and between young people, adolescents and adults. And we can't ignore that those things exist and we can't pretend that those things don't require a responsible and helpful response from us as professionals who care about the health and adolescence. But it is also true that not all sexual activity on the part of adolescents is non-consensual. Some sexual activity is part of a normal developmental process of growing up and turning from a child into an adult. I learned from Keith when we gave a short presentation about this at the uh, Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine meeting last March, that the percent of sexually active adolescents increases with age, and the percent of non-consensual sex decreases with age. So if you're looking at 10, 11, and 12-year-olds, you're virtually always going to find that it's non-consensual, and when you're, maybe not always, but most often, and when you're looking at 17, 18, 19 year olds, you are less frequently going to find that it's non-consensual. One very critical factor may be the age of the partners. Age differences also decrease with age, so older adolescents tend to have partners who are closer to their own age, younger adolescents who either consensually or non-consensually are engaging in sexual activity tend to have partners much older than they are. But the, the evidence that we have suggests that not more than about a fifth of adolescents of any age have partners that are more than four years older. So we're not talking about a majority of young people who have sexual partners disparate in age. So with that backdrop of adolescent sexual activity, what do we need to say about confidential care for adolescents? Many of you may have heard me speak in other settings about confidentiality at, at some considerable length. And it's important, I think, always to remind ourselves why it is that we want to be able to provide confidential care for adolescents. There are at least two goals, or one overriding goal, of avoiding negative health outcomes, both for the health of the adolescent and for the public health. And in order to do this, we need to encourage adolescents to seek necessary care. The role of confidentiality in encouraging and ensuring that adolescents seek necessary care and are able to receive it is supported by decades of research findings. Literally 30, 40 years of studies have repeatedly found both in narrow contexts like um, sexual and reproductive health and in broad contexts like healthcare uh, generally, privacy concerns can influence whether adolescents seek care when they do so. In other words, do they delay until the last minute when they're really in trouble or do they seek care earlier? Where they seek care and how openly they talk with their healthcare providers when they do have an encounter with a healthcare professional. So, understanding that there is lots of sexual activity going on that involves adolescents, that some of that sexual activity is voluntary and some of it is non consensual. Understanding that an important part of the arena or the landscape of addressing that sexual activity in ways that promote and protect the health of the young people is providing confidential care. Let's turn to the specific question that we're thinking about this morning, which is how do we untangle the law that requires mandated reporters to report some sexual activity of minors to legal authorities, either a child welfare agency or a law enforcement agency? And how do we do that in a way that leads us to the goal of making sure that adolescents can get the kind of comprehensive, appropriate, high quality health care they need. So I'm going to start by defining a couple of important terms, identifying what some of the relevant laws are, try to clarify a little bit what the relationships are among the laws, um, explain something about how you interpret gray areas i have talked for many many years to groups of adolescent health professionals like yourselves and (coughs) i always get a question of if this is the case what do i do and sometimes there's a clear answer but sometimes there isn't and that's those gray areas where as a clinical social worker I saw just yesterday who practices here in New Hampshire said to me I've been to so many trainings on legal issues and confidentiality and mandatory reporting and the lawyers always say on the one hand and on the other hand And I thought oh gosh I'm bringing both my hands today I'll try to keep them tied behind my back but it really is a situation where often the law does not have a clear answer And sometimes that's good, because sometimes that means you have the opportunity to understand what the law permits, what the law prohibits, and then within that exercise sound clinical judgment. Ultimately, I hope that um, we can all take as part of our mission advocating for positive policies that promote the health of adolescence. And I'll close with just a few comments or pointers on determining a course of action. So I'm going to talk about two specific phrases or terms that get tossed around and used a lot, not always in uh, accurate ways. Statutory rape is a phrase. How many of you have heard the term statutory rape? Everybody. Okay. Statutory rape often is used loosely to refer to sex between an adult and a minor. Yes, we've often heard it used in that way. Statutory rape is not a legal term. I think there might be four states in the country, or three or six, I forget how many, that actually have the term statutory rape in their law. It's a colloquial term And it is used loosely in the way that I just mentioned. um, But it also is used sometimes in a slightly narrower way to refer to acts that involve sex below the age of consent. Okay, So what does the age of consent mean? Well, the age of consent, again, is not per se a legal term but it is a a broad um, phrase that is used to refer either to the age at which an individual a young person may sort of generally consent to sexual intercourse or (laughs) the, the age below which an individual may never consent to sexual intercourse and I'm using the term sexual intercourse here purposely because I'm sure all of you are thinking well, sexual intercourse isn't the only thing that adolescents do that involves sexual activity or sexual interaction. There are all kinds of behaviors which may or may not fall within the definition per se of sexual intercourse. Um, and there are, you know, penal code sections in every state that define you know, long lists of sexual crimes, some of which involve you know, sexual penetration that we think of as sexual intercourse and some of them don't involve that. And so that's where we start to kind of feel like maybe we're on a a moving ship or something. So what are the relevant bodies of law that are important in understanding how and when the sexual activity of adolescents needs to be reported. Well, of course the child abuse reporting laws. Then there's a whole body of law that I just referred to, the laws that criminalize sexual acts. Then there are the minor consent laws that allow minors to consent for a whole range of different kinds of health care. And there are the confidentiality laws. I'm going to focus primarily on the first two categories right now, but in the Q&A, if you want to talk a little bit more about the minor consent laws and the confidentiality laws, we can, we can certainly do that. But um, let me start by commenting about the child abuse reporting laws. Child abuse reporting laws date back to the early 1960s. They exist in every state. There, is a f- there are not federal laws that specifically mandate child abuse reporting, but there is a federal law, the Federal Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, referred to as CAPTA, that sets up a framework within which states must have a child abuse reporting law in order to receive certain kinds of child abuse prevention and treatment funding from the federal government. So there is um, a set of criteria that state child abuse reporting laws need to meet in order to comply with CAPTA and make their state eligible for um, receiving certain federal funds. I've included this quotation from a law review article that dates back to the 1967 because I think it's really important that we be reminded that the purpose of child abuse reporting laws is to trigger constructive action so that a child's life may be lived in safety and that's just as true today as it was in 1967 but sometimes that gets lost in the morass of, you know, the details of when do I have to make this report and who do I have to make the report to and uh, what would happen to me if I don't make the report, all of which are important factors. but may not say anything at all about what the result of that report is going to be in terms of either a response to the young person who's being reported to authorities or in terms of the effect that reporting may have in the minds of other young people who learn about the reporting. what are some of the key elements of child abuse reporting laws first of all defining child abuse and neglect and that's a very critical place where we could find out either that a vast range of voluntary sexual activity of adolescents is swept up under the definition of child abuse and neglect Or we could find out that the definitions are much narrower and more targeted and clear and and do not sweep up vast areas. Who the perpetrators of child abuse are may be limited to the parent, the guardian, the caretaker, or the responsible person for the care of the child or may extend to third parties. Mandated reporters Include always healthcare professionals, usually a long list um, of healthcare professionals. Others, in their professional or working capacity, who have contact with children, teachers, people in the school system. And in some states, everyone is a mandated reporter. Um, that's more unusual, but there are a few states, including at least one in one state in New England where everyone is a mandated reporter. If you are a mandated reporter, and I'm sure you've all heard this at trainings that you've been to, you are immune from liability for making a report in good faith. In other words, if you make a report in good faith, someone can't turn around and say, you violated this confidentiality law, and therefore you're going to be uh, challenged in terms of the status of your professional license, or you violated HIPAA or something else. Um, but the report needs to be made in, in good faith and in compliance with the criteria. So, making a report that is not mandated is not something for which you are immune. But the mandated reporting, child abuse reporting laws do override in all instances that I'm aware of, other confidentiality requirements. So what is reportable abuse and neglect? Child abuse is often defined, almost always defined, to include physical abuse, sexual abuse and exploitation, and emotional abuse. And increasingly, in a growing number of states, it's being defined to include human trafficking, sex trafficking, and in some cases, labor trafficking. And neglect, which includes abandonment, injurious living conditions, and denial of proper care. I've spelled these all out because I think it's really important to understand that somehow, some way, sexual activity of minors might fall under one of these criteria, not just under the sexual abuse and exploitation, but they may not. So mandated reporters are required, generally, to report reasonable suspicion or knowledge or belief that a child has been abused or neglected or subjected to non-accidental physical injury, or is at imminent risk of serious harm. That, I put that in red because it's really important that um, if there is no abuse or neglect per se, there might be an imminent risk of serious harm but there might not be an imminent risk of serious harm and a report might not be required. Generally the agencies receiving reports are either the child welfare agency or the law enforcement agency or both depending on the circumstances. Sometimes they have cross-reporting obligations, sometimes abuse is reportable to child welfare if the parent, guardian, or caretaker is the perpetrator, but to law enforcement if a third party is the perpetrator. So moving from the child abuse reporting laws on the one hand to the laws that criminalize sexual activity on the other hand, I did it, I promised I wasn't going to do it on the one hand, on the other hand, Uh, but I did. So now that's out of the way. all states criminalize some sexual activity with minors. This involves multiple crimes and wide variations in the stati- specifics. They include, it would virtually always include rape, sexual assault, might include lewd and lascivious conduct, which would be defined in a variety of ways. These laws often include age differentials, you know, someone who is under the age of 14, who has uh, sexual intercourse with someone who is over the age of 16, or what there's a three-year age difference, a two-year age difference, a four-year age difference. <coughs> Those are criminal laws. They may or may not be the same as the, what is um, addressed in the child abuse reporting laws. They often overlap, they are sometimes cross-referenced in the child abuse reporting laws, but they are not the same thing. The minor consent laws, which I won't dwell on it at too much length, exist in every state. They are based either on the status of the minor, emancipated minors, married minors, uh, minors living apart from their parents, those all might be covered. And then minor consent that is based on the services a young person is seeking. So somebody might come in seeking outpatient mental health services but reveal sexual activity. Someone might come in um, in some way related to... um, drug or alcohol counseling or treatment but reveal sexual activity, or they may come in for something that is specifically related to sexual activity. So the question could arise in a variety of different contexts, but the baseline is that minors do have these rights in every state. Not every single one of those services is covered in every state, but at least some of those services are covered in every state. So the confidentiality laws, again, are very broad, and extend from the constitutional right of privacy under the federal constitution and some state constitutions, as well as the HIPAA privacy rule, the Title X family planning program, the Medicaid program, and then a whole array of state laws, which I haven't listed here. including the medical privacy and medical records laws, and sometimes the minor consent laws themselves, which contain confidentiality protections. There are also professional licensing laws, evidentiary privileges, et cetera, um, which we can talk about at greater length. But those laws are just as important as the laws that criminalize sexual activity and the laws that require reporting of child abuse. So this is a slide that I have included to make it very, very clear. If you learn nothing else from this talk, please go away understanding that the child abuse reporting laws and the laws criminalizing sexual acts involving minors are not the same. They may overlap this much, they may overlap this much, they may be an almost perfect match, but they are not the same. And so it's really important to understand that distinction. So what about these gray areas in the law? What if you're in a situation where, in your state, the definitions of reportable child abuse don't clearly match or encompass the criminal code, the penal code definitions of sexual crimes? with minors, who interprets the laws? Who is it that decides? Remember at the beginning I said, it's important to understand what the law says and it's important to understand what the law means. Who decides what the law means? Well, in the first instance, the legislature and What the legislature intends or means by a law may be in the wording of the statute, or it may be in the legislative history, in discussions and committee hearings, and all kinds of other background um, material that is pertinent to understanding what the law means. The law may be interpreted by the courts in cases It may be interpreted by the state attorney general in attorney general's opinions. It may be interpreted by the child welfare agency in their regulations and their guidance and their policies. It may be interpreted by individual district attorneys around the state who decide when they're going to bring actions to enforce either the penal code provisions, uh, criminalizing sexual acts with minors, or enforce the child abuse reporting requirements. It may be interpreted by the police in terms of how they uh, apply the law in investigating and making arrests and bringing charges. It's interpreted at health care sites. You go to your trainings, you read the statute, you get guidance, you get fact sheets, you get all kinds of um, things. And then your institution, whether it's a hospital or an individual uh, health care professional office or a school or some other kind of clinic, you develop policies for how to apply the laws that go beyond just the wording of the law, because the wording of the law doesn't cover every situation that arises. And then, of course, as individual healthcare professionals, you are in a position of having to decide how you are going to act in the context of these different laws alongside of the ethical principles that bind you professionally. panic proceed with caution tread very carefully and don't make any assumptions I can't tell you how many times people have said to me well but I, I I'm gonna get a subpoena and then I just have to turn it all over well that may not be true yes if you get a subpoena you don't ignore it but if you get a subpoena you consult with legal advisors you figure out whether how much information you have to to disclose in response to the subpoena how much you don't have to disclose in response to the subpoena um, but but it's a crime for a 16 year old to have sex with a 14 year old well maybe it is but does that mean that you have to make a report maybe but maybe not so don't make any assumptions what you're in a position of having to do is exercise your professional judgment now there will be situations where under your state's (laughs) child abuse reporting law some circumstances present themselves to you and there will be no question in your mind I need to make a report and you should make the report. But there will be situations which you may learn about through reading an attorney general's opinion in your state, through learning about how courts have decided cases in your state, through understanding the policies that your institution has established for compliance with child abuse reporting laws. There may be situations where you have to exercise your professional or clinical judgment and in those circumstances what you need to be doing is determining do I have a reasonable suspicion that a child, someone under the age of 18, who has engaged in some type of sexual activity has been abused well, what are some of the kinds of factors that you think about in those situations? First of all, you want to think about how old is the, is the young person and how old is their partner. The first um, case that I worked on that involved this issue was in 1984 in California when the State Attorney General had issued an opinion saying that any sexual activity that involved a minor under the age of 14 had to be reported as child abuse. And that would have included two 14-year-olds messing around with each other. There were three court cases that arose from that Attorney General's opinion. And one of those cases was one that I worked on with the ACLU in California. And the upshot of the case was that the court decided, yes, the um, California constitutional right of privacy protects minors as well as adults, including minors under the age of 14. And then they came up with a very complicated algorithm for if you're under 14 and the partner's over 14, one thing happens. If you're both under 14, something else happens. If you're both over 14, something else happens. And you don't need to know about it because it was in California and it was a long time ago. But one of the things that the court said in that situation was nothing in this opinion obligates healthcare professionals to ask questions that they would not otherwise ask in the course of taking a good health history. So even the court was deferring and recognizing that there was a level of professional judgment. Now I am not here to dissuade you from asking any questions that you think are important to ask in providing good high quality healthcare to an adolescent. Um, But in asking those questions, you will then be receiving information that enables you to make some determinations or make some assessment of do you have a reasonable suspicion that a child is being abused. And the age of the minor and the sexual partner is certainly one thing. If you have a 12-year-old and a 24-year-old, your antenna are going to be up all over the place. If you have a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old, your antenna may be up, but maybe not in the same way. What type of sexual activity are we talking about? Are we talking about sexual intercourse? Are we talking about something else? Is there a power differential? Do we clearly have one partner who is exerting a lot of power and influence over the other partner? Because if there is a power differential for whatever reason, it might be age, but it might be something else, that may indicate that there is a level of coercion or a degree of coercion or influence involved that makes you lean towards thinking that this is abusive rather than consensual or voluntary. And then a very, very important criteria is, is there a risk of imminent harm to the young person? In other words, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a situation where you can identify some really significant risk of physical, emotional, or other health-related harm to the young person and their safety or not? And then of course you need to think about the ethical standards that apply to your profession and to apply to the healthcare professions generally and the relevant laws which we've just reviewed at least in in general terms. And it's through that kind of an exercise that you can reach a professional judgment that helps you understand what you need to do in the situation. So there are some very good reasons in some situations to report sexual activity of minors to either child welfare or law enforcement. And I'm talking here not about simply the fact that you have to comply with the law, because you do have to comply with the law when the law is clear. Sexual exploitation, and ex- sexual exploitation and coercion, as I said at the beginning of this talk, are very real and they are serious and we should not ignore them and we should not pretend that they don't exist and some adolescents really do need protection and don't have any, anywhere else that they're likely to get it from and some perpetrators should be prosecuted. And there may not be any other way that that will happen unless the the activity comes to the attention of the appropriate authorities. But at the same time, there are some risks attendant upon reporting. And the main risk, a big risk, is that adolescents may be deterred from seeking care. The grapevine is very active and influential among young people. And if they, learn that if they go to X, Y, or Z healthcare setting and they reveal that they've been sexually active, that they're going to get turned over, turned over in their minds to child welfare authorities or to law enforcement and a policeman is going to show up at their house or a social worker is going to come to their school, they may be reluctant to go seek healthcare that they really need and healthcare professionals may feel constrained to not to be able to provide the really comprehensive and high quality care that is their mission in their professional work so casting the net too wide can harm the health of adolescents who are not really abused and can fail to protect adolescents who are abused in other words we may have some young people deterred from seeking health care who really are abused and really do need help but they may not come in seeking it back in 1984 when the attorney general in california issued that opinion that i mentioned the first case that was reported to the the san francisco department of social services was a 14-year-old boy who had had sex with a girl in his class. And a, the, In California at that time, there was a cross-reporting obligation between child welfare and law enforcement. So the Child Welfare <coughs> Agency referred it to law enforcement. And a policeman showed up at his school, took him out of class, took him to the city public health clinic to be tested for STDs and then let him go. And that was the end of it. But you could imagine what the effect was on his classmates and his other schoolmates to have an event like that. Now, I say that not because I think that case is typical or because I think that's gonna happen in your community if you make a report. I say that because we have to remember that while the risks of sexual coercion and exploitation are real, the risks of excessive reporting are also real. So what do you do? It's not easy. You have to understand what the laws are in your state. And as um, Dr. Loud said at the beginning, uh, I'm working with a lawyer at the National Center for Youth Law in California and um, we are putting together a kind of a background document for healthcare professionals in New England to understand more about what the laws say and also some of those other background um, issues that contribute to the rationale and the risks in terms of consent and confidentiality. So understanding what the laws say, learning how they've been interpreted, and then advocating for positive policies and interpretations, whether that be in your immediate healthcare setting or with your local Department of Social Services office or with the local district attorneys and police or with the state um, agencies and officials educate the decision makers about the role of confidential health care in protecting adolescents and make clear that your intention is not to avoid reporting of young people whom you truly and legitimately suspect are victims of abuse and who may be at imminent risk of serious harm Um, but to ensure that young people are protected in all dimensions and ultimately work to ensure that you do no harm. So there are some resources um, that are, I think, helpful. One is a position paper. It's a number of years old, but the the heart of it is still very valid that was – published in the Journal of Adolescent Health in 2004 that was a joint position paper of the AAP, the American Academy of Family Physicians, um, ACOG, and SAM. There is a uh, database um, in the Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families, that allows you to search the state laws on uh, child abuse reporting and the related provision child welfare provisions and there was a report again, it's about a decade or so old that was done by the Lewin group that is a good starting point for um, Research in your on your state laws related to uh, sexual activity that's criminalized for minors and child abuse reporting of that activity. So, thank you, and I'm happy to take questions. Well, for your questions to Keith, do you have anything they can't hear us or maybe they can't hear us? Yes, I'm happy. Can you hear us Anybody have questions for Keith or Ms. English? Can you hear us, Keith? We can hear you. We can hear you.
0: <laughs> we have a couple in the room here. I'll, I'll start this table.
1: And Keith, if you can have the technician take down your PowerPoint slide, that'll be great. <laughs>
0: Try
1: going to be the 18-year-old in the 18-year-old is a senior in high school and the 15 and three-quarter year old girl who's a junior who's dating him for the prom and I have a feeling that's going to be a big problem because if you look at the um, issue
0: that happened at uh, St. Paul's with that young man who was 17 and the girl was 15 now there was an issue of consent there but also he is now a a labeled pedophile for life, I kind of don't think that's pedophilia
1: because of the ages, but um, that two year age difference is very common, and as more and more children are given what they call in my area the gift of time and are held back in kindergarten, there are more and more kids who are graduating high school at nineteen almost twenty, and they're dating their high school classmates who are under, or who are sixteen, and then they can get in trouble if they're not nineteen and sixteen. there you go law. That's a big problem for us. So the question you've posed really has to do with how do we handle the sort of developmental reality that we've got um, older and older young people who are still in high school who are dating someone who is younger than they are. And whatever that age difference and whatever um, the specifics of the law are, in your particular state and how those laws have been determined would have an impact on first of all whether something had to be reported as child abuse but second of all the question you raise as to whether one or the other of those two young people might be prosecuted for the crime whatever that crime is and if they were prosecuted and convicted as the student from St. Paul's school was they may end up on a sex abuse registry and that is another very serious outcome and result that is not specifically the result of the mandatory reporting per se but is the result of uh, criminal prosecution of young people for sexual activity And whether those criminal prosecutions do or do not occur uh, comes down in the first instance to the judgment of the local district attorney as to whether to bring a charge and pursue a criminal prosecution. And so I can't comment on the specifics of Maine versus New Hampshire versus Connecticut today in terms of the age differentials that that exist. But I will acknowledge and agree with you that the implications of how district attorney's discretion is exercised in bringing prosecutions and how child abuse reporting laws are interpreted in their application to those kinds of situations is very important and needs a lot more work. than.
0: Is there a question in Lebanon, Kathy, at Dartmouth? Um, yes.
1: There's a question from Bridget Logan. Do you need the mic? No, you can speak loudly. Okay. Yeah, we having, can hear you. And having testified for a child that was in an abusive situation, and then notes, my clinic notes were being used in the courtroom. The lo- the child's lawyer pointed out that healthcare providers in general don't write notes that are entirely useful in a legal setting. Um, So without taking a course on how to properly write notes in a specific way, can you give some general advice about how to approach it um, so that we're protecting the child the best way but not feeling like we're writing a legal document in that particular way? I don't know that I can give you advice on that because I really have not I don't have the sufficient experience with uh, trial level court cases to say how you should take notes. Um, And I think that it's a very valid question and it might be something for which you would want to, I don't mean go hire a lawyer and get a legal opinion, but find someone who is an active litigator who can advise your clinic, or your setting, or your hospital about some of the ways to do exactly what you're describing. Because I think you have pinpointed the challenge, is you want to take notes that are in the first instance as useful as they need to be for delivering high quality care to the patient. And should those notes become public, if you will, I put that in quotes, in a court case, will they be um, able to meet the task? But if I were to tell you, well, keep the notes this way, I could almost immediately think of an instance where you wouldn't want to keep the notes that way. So I'm going to tread down that path, but I think it's a path worth Uh,
0: I see Wendy Gladstone in the room, and she's raising her hand as quickly as I was going to mention, Bridget, that we certainly have a child advocacy and protection team. I think if you're ever in that scenario, you might want to quickly call them to see what their guidance would be. But uh, Wendy, do you have any other thoughts? Child abuse pediatrician? (laughs) You've had a lot of experience nationally with other states who've looked at the same problem. And as I'm sure you know, there is a very active issue here in New Hampshire, because of, principally because of some prep schools that have had trouble with looking at how sexual assaults and sexual activity are handled on their campuses. Can you tell us um, or give us examples of states that have addressed this problem and helped practitioners in a state understand how they can best handle this struggle between reporting laws and confidentiality, so that as we as New Hampshire look at it, we can do something similar?
1: I can say a few things generally about that. Um, there, are, there are a group of advocates, attorneys, and healthcare professionals in California called the Adolescent Health Working Group, and then some the attorneys at the National Center for Youth Law, who have um, put together some resources for that state in which they've taken, you know, what the California laws say, and some of these background issues around consent and confidentiality. and and put them together into a tool for understanding the laws and deciding kind of how to move forward. So that's a nice model for um, how a a balanced group of advocates and healthcare professionals have addressed it within the confines of the law. There are a number of other states, um, not a large number, but there are some other states, uh, Kansas, and then some New England states where there have been either attorney general opinions issued um, or uh, some sort of guidance, training guidance has been issued around the uh, child abuse reporting laws. What's interesting about those opinions is that they don't. Um, cover all of the questions across the board. An attorney general issues an opinion when some kind of a state agency, poses either a legislator or a state agency, poses a question and says, if there is this set of facts, does this have to happen or not? And then the attorney general does a legal analysis and comes out with it. And that's extremely useful in kind of providing some pointers of where The legal interpretation in that state is headed, but it doesn't always cover the whole terrain. So those are useful. Uh, I think Connecticut has an opinion. Maine has an opinion. Um,
0: I think Massachusetts
1: recently recently issued some guidance from the Attorney General's office uh, around training on mandatory reporting. Yeah, so I think we're going to probably
0: lose Lebanon momentarily, but... The, Keith, thank you very
1: much. Here. Keith, it's Kathy, Ms. English. Thank you yep. very much for your talk. I really appreciate it. We're going to have to sign off here in Lebanon, but um, if anybody has questions, please forward them to me or Keith, and we can certainly continue this conversation in any way.
0: Yes, thank please you. Please do. So, to answer Wendy's question broadly, th- th- this very here is part of. Our attempt to have a response for New England, for New Hampshire, for New occasionally, the document will be a background document will be helpful, and we are also going to be help, hoping that each state, perhaps each state's children's hospital, will uh, dive in a little bit more, because there's a practical guide that California has that's, that's sort of a one page or table that guides you on what circumstances are, in fact, required. So. And did, I don't know if Gilles is in the room. The ACLU in New Hampshire is interested in the high Gilles from New Hampshire ACLU. So we've got multi-pronged interest to try and create the the knowledge and information within our state. And we thank the New Hampshire pa- Pediatric Society and the New Hampshire Academy of Family Physicians for supporting the the document. But but starting the conversation and the thinking today is is absolutely part of excuse me the educational effort um, that we have in mind. I. I know that Abigail's gonna be here all day, so those in this room can can pigeonhole her. We do wanna keep the program moving. So I will, let's give Abigail a round of applause.